Hello, it's Max Lamana, and in this episode of the Clean Energy Revolution, we're talking about an issue that's impacting many of us at the moment, the cost of living crisis, and the exciting ways that clean energy can be part of the solution. The ways energy is produced is evolving with innovation and imagination at a faster pace than ever before. And by using cleaner energy, we can help tackle climate change by reducing carbon emissions, taking us closer to the goal of net zero. But what about the people who actually use the energy and those who might struggle to afford the energy they need for their everyday lives? Many nonprofit organizations are looking at ways of using renewable and clean energy to help in their fight against fuel poverty. Coming up, we talk to a tiny home for good, who, as the name suggests, build small houses for those unhoused or houseless and build them in an energy efficient way. We also talk to HeartShare Human Services of New York, a nonprofit human services agency dedicated to improving the lives of people in need of special services and support. We also talk to the United Way of Central Massachusetts, who provide energy assistance to help people who struggle to pay their bills. And later in the podcast, we talk to the National Energy Foundation. They offer advice and guidance on lowering energy bills and deliver practical solutions to make homes warmer. Plus, the Fuel Bank Foundation, which provides emergency financial support and advice to UK households that are in fuel crisis. We also have a chat to Citizens Advice on what measures could really make a difference for those who need help the most. Thanks for joining us on the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. Let's get into it. A Tiny Home for Good is a small organization with a big mission. They build quality homes on vacant lots or renovated derelict properties in the city of Syracuse, New York. Each unit is rented to an individual who has faced being unhoused, and each home is built to be as energy efficient as possible. We visited the team at the sites of some of their projects to take a look at the homes and find out more. My name's Andrew Lanetta. I'm the executive director and founder of A Tiny Home for Good. And my name's Katie Weaver, and I'm the director of development for A Tiny Home for Good. A Tiny Home for Good exists to provide safe, affordable, and dignified housing to men and women facing homelessness in Syracuse. Uh, we do that by building the actual houses, by then managing and being respectable landlords, and most importantly, by providing long-term case management for every person who calls our houses their home. Uh, a Tiny Home for Good came out of kind of a long story. For eight years, I worked at one of the local shelters here in the city. Um, I had the privilege of meeting a lot of men who became really close and also an opportunity to see the affordable housing that they, for lack of a better word, were forced to live in. The only thing in their price range, uh, the only thing that uh, the shelters were partnering with. It was amazing that as a community, we were relying on this kind of housing to house some of our most vulnerable. So I started asking these men who I grown really close with what they were looking for in a house. And everyone described the same thing. They wanted uh, their own bedroom, their own bathroom, and a key that only they had. So if they locked the door in the morning, they knew that their things would still be there in the evening. Uh, nothing profound. And I frankly thought they were describing a tiny home. Uh, so in 2014, myself and a small board of directors uh, started putting the puzzle pieces together to build a tiny home for good. 
and really start providing housing that made sense for a rather difficult population um, to find somewhere that made sense for long-term housing. So we've built 26 homes uh, to date, and we have an additional 11 units under construction. Um, all of our new construction houses are powered solely by electricity, which means uh, either baseboard heat or wall-mounted units. And we also use on-demand uh, hot water heaters, which save space and are just more efficient for our units. Uh, we don't use gas because it's easier uh, when building new just not to have to deal with running a new gas line. And it's also safer for our tenants not to have gas appliances in their houses. And looking down the line, we know it's likely that electric and other renewable energy sources are going to be how we, as an organization and also as a community, um, are probably just powering our homes in the future. In our particular homes, we really focus on from the outside, big porches. And then upon walking in, you're entered with what is, I would say, a pretty sweet little living room. So uh, small living room, enough room though for a small couch, wall-mounted TV, a coffee table. And then typically on the right is where the kitchen space is. So um, what comes out to be about an eight foot counter space. Um, and next to that is a washer and dryer unit stackable and uh, kind of most of the amenities that you would see in a pretty standard efficiency apartment. So full-size fridge, microwave, um, hot plate. We don't have stoves, which is something that's still kind of up for debate, but we found that a lot of our tenants uh, don't prioritize that. So we've seen no reason to put it in. So that's kind of the main room. And then you literally walk into a little bit into the next room and that's the bedroom and the bedroom too is a good size more than large enough for a queen size bed uh plenty of storage with closets and then around the corner is where the bathroom sits so our houses are you know they are not going anywhere they're on a either a concrete pad or sit on piers so these houses are going to be here for a long long time and we do have the rich street project in conjunction with national grid which we're really excited about it worked out well time-wise, because we were working with a student architecture class at the University of Buffalo who were designing some energy-efficient, just beautiful, beautiful tiny homes for us. And we were able to um, use that to kind of pitch National Grid on supporting the, the build of these four homes. And we found a beautiful uh, vacant lot in the city across from a small park and uh, National Grid agreed to commit a quarter of a million dollars to get these homes built. So we're very excited about this partnership. Yeah. I mean, as Katie alluded to, the timing was literally perfect. So I guess I'll start with the building envelope. Um, it has no thermal bridging, meaning that insulation wraps the entire house. So we have a real focus on air sealing the entire house. So if uh, you know there's a little bit of heat that's let out into that house, the goal is to keep that heat in that house for as long as possible. And the houses that the students designed are really focused at doing just that. So that is one side of the kind of um, energy efficient side. The other is how do we actually power these things? And were uh, focusing on solar energy. So students designed these houses so that the roof lines would be facing south to really take full advantage of the solar gain that these houses have the ability to 
obtain. And once all said and done, probably 75% of these houses is going to be powered by renewables, by solar. The rest is going to be heated and um, run by electricity. So most of our tenants have tried other affordable housing options and just exhausted what's available to them. Um, and what makes our housing unique is we're largely one person per unit, except for the few larger homes that we have for families. Um, but these units that we have are reserved for our tenants. Um, they have their own space. They have their own key. It's just for them. And beyond that, what really makes a tiny home for good so unique is that we provide support services after tenants move in. So our mission really is only possible thanks to the very generous support of our county, our city, and frankly, to date, most importantly, the corporations that call the city of Syracuse their home. I mean, it's really neat to see an organization as large as National Grid giving back to a project as small as a tiny home for good. We will always be building tiny. We will always be focusing on uh, how, as an organization, do we best provide housing to men and women facing homelessness. But what we're going to be looking at is how do we do it more than just one house at a time? How do we look at neighborhoods or look at developments of tiny homes maybe and put those together in ways that work best for our tenants. And truth be told, if we're gonna be searching for those uh, grant dollars or partnerships, it's gonna be essential that renewable and energy efficient building is a crucial part of our projects. It's just It just has to be. Um, if we're gonna be building more, it really should be a key component of our builds going forward. So. I'm excited at not only the future of what's ahead for us, but also the kind of new things we're going to learn and how as an organization we can kind of do our part to build in a way that's energy efficient and really gives back to the community that has supported us so much. Thank you to the team at A Tiny Home for Good for showing us how they're assisting those who are unhoused and how renewable energy plays a part in that. HeartShare Human Services of New York, a nonprofit human services agency dedicated to improving the lives of people in need of special services and support. Since its founding in 1914, HeartShare has expanded to reach over 100 program sites in Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island, dedicated to New York's most vulnerable. Tanya Jones is their Associate Vice President for Government Relations and Advocacy. Tanya Jones, thank you so much for joining us. Um, can you explain the work of HeartShare? Sure. So HeartShare is a nonprofit agency. We're based in Brooklyn, New York, and we have programs for children and adults with developmental disabilities um, and with autism. We have schools for children with autism. We have wellness clinics. We also have programs for foster care and adoption. And then we have our energy assistance and community development program, which administers um, utility assistance for the major utilities across the state of New York. Can you share with us the number of people that you help on a daily basis? So combined with our energy assistance department and all of our other programs, we are over 30,000 individuals per year. It's it's amazing work that you do. You've been around for a long time. Maybe not you. The the the, the organization has been around for, for a long time. How long have you been around and what changes have you seen since, I think, is it 1914 the, the organization started? 
things are not really getting better, to be honest with you. Since the pandemic hit, I mean, that was a really big blow for the country, for the world, actually. And since then, you know, inflation has hit us. People are without jobs. New Yorkers pay some of the highest prices in the country for heating costs. Utility costs across the country have skyrocketed. And that's due to market prices. And, you know, we're trying to understand, but it's tough. It's tough for everybody out there. There are people out of work. People are using more heat and electricity. They're either home because they're remote workers or they're completely out of work. Children are home more. So it's it's hard to find a balance to say where I'm going to be able to save. We're looking towards the future saying, how can we survive with these costs? But I'm not sure looking down two years, three years, five years, that it is going to get better. And a lot of the people that need assistance are vulnerable households. And those are seniors over 60, households with children under six, and people with medical conditions and disabilities. So let's switch gears. What type of energy grants do you provide? So we provide utility assistance grants for utilities such as Con Edison, um, New York State Electric and Gas, Rochester Gas and Electric, and National Grid. Um, These programs help customers that are low income and in an emergency status, some of them who just have arrears. So low income customers, they can get federal heating assistance as well as utility assistance grants because they fall within that income. Then we have moderate income families who don't qualify for anything. And for a long time, they were getting no assistance. So National Grid, together with HeartShare, um, came up with a plan to help moderate income families get a utility assistance grant if they have a certain amount of arrears, as well as food assistance, which hasn't been done before. We're here trying to tackle energy insecurity and food insecurity at the same time, addressing poverty and social justice. And this is what HeartShare is about. You have your hands full. You know what? My family always said, you know, you always want to be able to help somebody. So if I could get up every day and know that I can go to work and help somebody, it just it makes all the difference. Just switching gears a little bit on this podcast, we talk about ways of being more energy efficient. I just wanted to know with with helping people in these grants that you provide, does the conversation of being more energy efficient and clean and renewable energy ever kind of cross your mind or the minds of of those who need help? A lot of the customers who call us, many are seniors. They're living in old homes where they have windows. They're not sealed properly. They have holes in their roofs. They have drafty doors. And so when we talk to them and saying, okay, you're eligible for this amount of assistance, but your bill may be $5,000. What else is going on in the home? And if they let us know that there are problems, we can refer them to energy efficiency programs in New York. There are a lot of energy efficiency measures that we do counsel them on during our outreach and education piece. When we go out into the community and have workshops, we do talk about this as well. That starts for us again in the spring. So we are all the way in it. We try to make it full circle. It's interesting that you receive calls like this. It sounds like on a daily basis. Some of those things, they may be small, but you know, in the grand scheme of things over and over and over again, they do add up. Is there ways that we can help HeartShare? It sounds like an amazing organization and it's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much. You can go to www.heartshare.org and you can donate. 
we are having our annual fundraiser that's coming up, which is really big. We have many fundraising events. That's Tanya Jones, the Associate Vice President for Government Relations and Advocacy at HeartShare. Thank you so much, Tanya. Thanks for joining us. One of the most important considerations as we transition to using more clean energy is that no one is left behind. And now some residents and small businesses may find paying their utility bills a bit easier thanks to United Way of Central Massachusetts. Through programs like the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, they provide help for people who struggle to pay their bills but whose income isn't low enough to qualify for governmental assistance. Tim Garvin is the president and CEO of United Way of Central Massachusetts. Tim, for those who don't know United Way, how does it work? What United Ways do is they try and be hyper-local, but also linked to respond to the needs of a community and listen to the people of that community as to what those needs are. United Ways across the country and the world would listen to people who can describe what kind of job training they need or what kind of issues would address and affect and finally resolve poverty. And the three big foci across the country are education and, and opportunities for kids, especially as a way of reducing poverty in the long-term future, economic security for all families and individuals and seniors and adults, and the health of a community. And so it's the holistic version of health. It's not just the medical health, but it would include behavioral health and mental health and environmental health. Before we spoke, Tim, I was on a call with Tanya from Brooklyn, New York, and we talked about her organization and the work that she's doing. And I felt very connected to that because I had once lived in New York. I, being American, have heard of United Way and have actually volunteered uh, and donated to United Way in my time. My mother and father have always been about shine a light or have encouraged my siblings and I to be more involved in our community and help give back in, in any way that we can. So speaking of home and uh, growing up in the United States, it's been an extremely cold winter. Just how cold are we talking? So last weekend... The temperature in Worcester, Massachusetts was negative three, and there was a wind chill factor of 30 to 35 degrees, which is not just bitingly cold, but it is dangerously cold. Last week, and I believe on Mount Washington in New Hampshire, it set a new record. I've heard it was negative 125. So Max, that's cold. And for those who can't do the math in their head and, and, and figure out what negative 125 is. It's minus 87 degrees Celsius. And you said minus three, which I think is around minus 20 over here. So that is very, very cold. And does this mean you've had more and more people coming to you in United Way asking for help? More than we've ever seen before. And when you complement the cold with the rise of inflation, and the fragile economy, you have a bad one, two, three punch. If I'm not mistaken, the agency that we work with, their first time applications for utility assistance are up by 87%. And through the 15th of January, they had received 12,000 applications looking for utility assistance. 12,000 is as big as a hamlet or a town or a university. And if people aren't getting in touch with you, how do you reach out to people in need? We do the traditional and the new traditional. The traditional is anybody who's applied in the past, we send them a a link, an email, or make a phone call to say, how are you doing? And again, when people are are vulnerable or living on the edge, 
there can be transition and turnover in where they live and phones cannot work. We also use social media, what I call the new traditional. So Facebook and Instagram and um, Snapchat and text messaging, any means possible. And then we also try and use the old traditional media of newspapers, TV and radio to tell people we are about help and we are about hope. And we want to make sure that anybody who's in need can find ways to access the the resources that we have in the community. I love that. So you work with Worcester Community Action Council. What do they do and how do they contribute? The Worcester Community Action Council is one of many action councils set up all over the United States in 1972 as part of the war on poverty. And so they are, in fact, the knock on the door, go in, fill out the application for all kinds of benefits. And in addition to utilities, and the federal LIHEAP, Low-Income Heat and Energy Assistance Program, they, the Worcester Community Action Council also does energy assistance by trying to insulate homes better so that energy isn't wasted. Worcester, Massachusetts housing stock can be quite old. And so insulating them and bringing them up to code is really important because it will reduce energy costs, which in fact increases the economic viability of the people who live in them. For those who are listening, how can we help? The simplest way, and I really mean this, is for every single person who listens to this podcast, if they are inspired by it, and I hope they are, that they will tell their friends that we can volunteer, we can donate, we can advocate. Second, log on to United Way website and read about what we do. The third way, choose to volunteer. Fourth way, become a contributor. I could spend a dollar or two in U.S. terms, on a beverage. My thought is, can everybody who's listening give one beverage a week, a bottle of water, a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, one a week, give up that that small amount that's built into your budget so that after the course of a year, your donation is 52 times bigger than that weekly donation. Everybody can be part of the solution and we hope everybody will choose to be. Wow, Tim Garvin. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm feeling more hopeful. I'm definitely feeling more inspired. And I just want to thank you for sharing your wisdom, your work, and everything that you do with the United Way. So thank you so much for joining us. Max, thank you to you. Have a great day. And if you're ever back in the United States in Worcester, I'll buy the coffee or the beer. Thank you, Tim. I'll take you up on that offer. In the face of this escalating cost of living crisis, it's more important than ever that people can turn to someone for advice on managing costs and keeping out the cold. And often that organization is Citizens Advice, which delivers information and guidance across a range of issues, including managing energy bills. And in the middle of winter, we've got rising demand, so it's important to support people through difficult periods ahead. Kara Holmes is a senior policy researcher at Citizens Advice. Kara, thank you so much for joining us. Now, let's jump right into it. What are the real challenges that people visiting Citizens Advice are facing? I think this past year, we've really been breaking the kind of records that you don't want to be breaking. So we are seeing more and more people coming to us for urgent help. End of last year, we've helped nearly more than 235,000 people with energy issues, which is 50% higher than last year and double 2020. We're seeing more visits to our web pages on like energy efficiencies. We've seen actually it's on the topic of energy costs. In general, more people have come for help 
to top up their prepayment meters than for the entire last 10 years combined. We're helping more and more people with crisis support, over 200,000 people. We've had to get food bank referrals and emergency charitable support. In December, we were helping more than three people every minute. And I think in December as well, we were giving more people fuel vouchers than in any week since we started recording data. So we're seeing more and more need for really urgent crisis support than I think pretty much we've ever done before. For those who don't know Citizens Advice, can you shine a light on this and maybe share a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so Citizens Advice is probably one of those that people have heard of but don't necessarily know what we do. We do a lot of things. So I think the part of our organization that people might be more familiar with is like the -the on-the-ground support. So there are regional offices around that people can go into and get help on sort of a range of issues. But there's also a national organization, which is the one that I work for, that doesn't provide advice, but we advocate for change. So we kind of look at the data that's coming in, we see the problems that people have, and then we try to work with government and whatever agencies else that are kind of relevant to get change for the people that we're seeing. So the team that I work in is the energy team. And I'm part of the Net Zero Homes part of that team. So what we do is make sure that the kind of transition to Net Zero 2050 is fair, it's inclusive, and it makes sure that everyone really can have the benefits of what Net Zero can offer. The challenges that people may face, is this all about the cost of living crisis or is it just about the fuel bills? So I think it's kind of a mixture of everything. I think that's why we're really seeing that peak of support. I think people are kind of being hit from all angles at the moment. Like, I mean, we've got rising fuel bills, we've got the energy bills going up, you know, like I think pretty much everything, mortgages, insurance. So when it's coming from all angles, I think that's where people are really struggling to cope. I think especially as this has kind of been going on since like 2019. So we've kind of seen a steady ramping up of people coming to us for issues, like for help. We're seeing new people who've never come to us for help before. So kind of suggesting that where people were maybe just about managing, just about coping with all these extra bits on top, that's what's really pushing them over the edge and really like tightening those budgets and making things difficult. If people do get in trouble and people are facing challenges, what protection is there for them? So the things that we help people with, like on the day to day that come in to see us, if it's around energy efficiency, we might refer them to local energy efficiency schemes or national schemes. If it's help with sort of cost of living, that might be fuel vouchers, that might be um, sort of food bank referrals, any emergency charitable support that exists in their area or nationally. Also, there's like things with benefit entitlements, like not everyone is claiming the benefits to which they are entitled. So that can also help to increase people's income. But what my team, I guess, focus on is more of the national picture of like how we can try to help sustainably reduce those energy bills. I think one of the big ways really to do that is through energy efficiency and increasing energy efficiency of people's homes. I want to talk a little bit about clean and renewable energy. I think you're heading there. Is there also the challenge of decarbonization, but is that at the forefront of people's minds when they come to you for advice and help? No, (laughs) that's the (laughs) easy answer. No, people want help. They want to kind of be able to live a sort of comfortable and happy life. And They want to be able to live in a warm and dry home. And it's not necessarily, they're not necessarily kind of drawing those lines between where that sits for them individually and what that looks like nationally as like we're moving towards net zero. And I think that's where 
sort of my team comes in, I guess, a bit, and we look at how do we bring these things together? Like, how can we address fuel poverty, the, like the urgent, the urgent issue of fuel poverty, whilst also meeting our commitments to net zero and moving towards decarbonisation? And I think while maybe it can seem like net zero is suddenly not a priority because the cost of living is so biting and so urgent, those things aren't mutually exclusive. We can do them together. They can happen at the same time. It just needs thought as to how best to do that, because you can tackle fuel poverty by just throwing money at people. That's not necessarily sustainable in the long term. And also, I think it's not necessarily getting people to like where they need to be. So I think really moving towards net zero is a way for everyone to kind of reap the benefit of low carbon living. And it's just more of a question of like, how do we get there and how do we make sure that the people that are struggling now in fuel poverty are not being left behind. People want help. They want to make sure that heat is on, clean, dry, warm home. The The conversation of clean and renewable energy might not even cross their minds. But with you and your team at Citizens Advice, you're thinking about it. It's on your to-do list, but it's tackling that first hurdle, making sure that people are, are safe and they're, they're warm yeah, and that they have the lights for, on. For sure. And I think that's why we've kind of been a big advocate for energy efficiencies to get to a sort of slightly more efficient home. You're looking at around £4,000, but that's just money that people don't have. So if we want to kind of start chipping away one at people's fuel bills and also the emissions that their homes generate, energy efficiency is a great place to start, not the end. But it means that then when you come to start making those further decarbonizing changes, like uh, new heating sources, like heat pumps, things like that, those low carbon heating technologies are always going to perform better in an energy efficient home. So you're never going to regret energy efficiency if you've done it right. So I think that's the kind of a bridging place. It's a good place to start. There seems to be so much advice out there to live a more cleaner, renewable energy sort of life and quite daunting and a bit overwhelming at times. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a lot. How do I know what to do? Like, I mean, you start talking about all of these really, what seem like really technical interventions, like, you know, cavity wall insulation. Do I, I don't even know what a cavity wall is. You know, it's like this kind of things. How do people navigate that? And that's something that we really think is missing at the moment. It's like a, a very clear advice package for people, a very clear set of options for them on what they should actually do, what's right for their home, because what's right for someone else's house might not be right for your house. So yeah, we've we've kind of really, really been pushing the, the need for more comprehensive advice and more tailored advice so that people don't have to do this research on their own. Kara Holmes is a senior policy researcher at Citizens Advice. Kara, thank you so much for joining us and offering us some advice. The Fuel Bank Foundation provides emergency financial support and advice to households that are in fuel crisis and at risk of living without heat, light, and power. Matthew Cole is the CEO of the Fuel Bank Foundation. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Let's jump right into it. Are you seeing an increase in the number of people coming to you in crisis? Yeah, absolutely. Over the last year, we've seen about a 200% increase of people who are seeking out help from Fuel Bank. And that, I think, is because people's ability to cope is just diminishing. You know, people have got less money put aside for a rainy day. And so when that rainy day comes, there's no proverbial tempo note in a jam jar in the kitchen cupboard they can rely on. And so they come to us, they come to Fuel Bank for, for crisis help. Now, 
how have people ended up in a crisis and, and are people aware of these problems before they happen? Um, we've come out to the back of tough economic times. We had the COVID lockdown and then as lockdown ended, the price of many things people have to buy, including energy, started to increase. And the ability to kind of weather those storms has just been diminished. A lot of people maybe use savings to help get through the COVID period. That meant that when cost of living pressure started to increase, there's a limit as to how much of that increase they could absorb themselves. When we look at it, though, we kind of see a lot of the early warning signs. People were making rationing choices about the energy they used. They would maybe ration when they were using hot water. They would maybe be buying cheaper goods in supermarkets. But they get to a point where actually there's no money left. And so energy then stops in the house. So they're the people we're supporting today. And it's people who literally are having to choose between eating or eating. For those who don't know what Fuel Bank Foundation is, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, of course. So Fuel Bank is like a food bank, but rather than providing crisis tins of baked beans or packets of pasta, we provide crisis electricity and gas for those people who are living without. And the people we normally help are those people who have a prepayment meter. So with a prepayment meter, you have to pay as you go. And the difficulty is that if you need to pay for energy today, but you don't have any money, the chance is that you will start to ration your energy or you will do without very quickly. They're the kind of families we're, we're supporting at the moment across the UK. And how about using clean and renewable energy? It might not be something that is particularly on someone's mind as they're going through uh, crises in their, in their own homes. But is this important to you and, and to the families that you support? Um, for the families we support, it's really interesting. I would say they're some of the most energy aware folk you would find in the UK. They absolutely are aware of the cost of energy, how efficient appliances are, where energy is maybe wasted in their home, whether maybe opportunities to be env more environmentally sound or more sustainable. The challenge they often have is they don't have the, the capital or the money they need to make those changes themselves. But absolutely, a majority of the people we support are really, really behind plans to decarbonize sorry, energy. The issue is they don't have the funding themselves to do it. And, and how do fuel vouchers actually work? So it's really simple. We have a network of around 500 partners across the country. Those partners have access to our fuel bank portal. So when they come across somebody who meets our criteria, which is they're struggling to keep themselves warm, they're either living without energy or will, they will do in the next few days, they refer them into us. We do some additional validation verification. And what we do is we send a credit, in effect, to that customer's meter. They can get the lights back on again, the gas pilot light relit. They can get the home warm again. It's all about speed and efficiency of delivery. Mm. Last year, 97% of people we, who were referred into us during the day had their supply restored by tea time that evening. So it's a really simple premise. You know, in the morning, they're referred into us. By the evening, they can cook a hot meal for the kids. They can make a cup of tea. They can have a shower before bed. And, and that allows mm. people to have a little bit more normality, but then also to start to work through some of the advice and guidance we give them to hopefully to unpick some of the problems they're facing. So maybe things become a little bit better for them next time around. Um, is there a way that we can help those in need and help you? Yeah. So, so I think at a really high level, I would say, if you're struggling or you know of people who are struggling, it's best to get in touch with Fuel Bank before that problem happens. So our web address is www.fuelbankfoundation.org. Please look at our website. Please get in touch with our website and we'll do what we can to provide help to people. Matthew Cole is the CEO of the Fuel Bank Foundation. Thank you so much. Nice to be with you. 
Of course, keeping warm in our own home may be front of mind in the face of this escalating cost of living crisis, but it can also have a surprising ecological benefit. The National Energy Foundation works to help improve the energy efficiency of homes, offers advice and guidance on lowering energy bills, and delivers practical solutions to make homes warmer. Paul Cineglio is the head of Whole Home Retrofit, which is part of the National Energy Foundation. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Max. Yeah, good to be here. Paul, for those who don't know what Whole Home Retrofit is or the National Energy Foundation, can you explain a little bit to our listeners? Yeah, for sure. So the National Energy Foundation is a a charity established in 1989 based in uh, Milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire. We've got sort of two key roles, really. One is, is sort of trying to help alleviate fuel poverty, help people to be able to afford to heat their homes and distributing grants, for example. And um, the side of the business I focus on more is to do with whole home retrofit, which is where we're looking to apply a number of uh, energy efficient measures that work together. It's more of a sort of a systematic approach according to a plan in the whole house retrofit side. How do you help people refit their homes to be warmer and less drafty? And, And does this help save them money? Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to know the motivators for people to wishing to carry out a, a retrofit. On the whole home side, it is normally or more so driven by climate protection, if I'm honest. But of course, everybody likes lower running costs. And also people often want to just improve like the health and comfort of their home as well, especially if a home hasn't been upgraded for some some years. With the sort of more what we would call the able to pay market, we would uh, generally follow an approach that's been endorsed by the government, and that is to carry out a home survey and and produce what we call a whole house retrofit plan. And that retrofit plan is really an options appraisal of everything that they could fit to their home, retrofit to their home, be it insulation, renewable energy. And it sort of gives them an indication of the costs and what the benefits to them would be in terms of improving the energy performance, reducing emissions and their running costs. But then we have a a different approach more for the under our better housing and better health program. You mentioned earlier, you said it's funny to hear their motives. Of course, we need the money. But yes, it's also good for the environment, too. Correct? Definitely. You you know, and so people still say, oh, what's the payback on on that measure? And this is a mindset that we've really got to try and get away from and see energy efficiency, just like any other sort of essential home improvements. People will quite happily put a nice expensive kitchen in or or a conservatory with energy efficiency, you know, this stuff saves you money and does good for the planet. Um, Problem is sometimes you can't always see it. Like you can spend a lot of money on insulation and it's not a visual sort of impact, but it is there making a big difference. And using clean and renewable energy, is that a big drive for people or or a force for people? I know like, you know, let's put money to the side, but using clean and renewable energy, is that a driver for people to look at refitting their homes? And does that save them money? Yeah, Definitely increasingly so, Max. I think solar photovoltaics is now a pretty established technology in the country. You know, there's not the original grants and feed-in tariffs that were there to accelerate installation of that, but costs have come down. And now with electricity supply prices being so high, you know, the payback periods for PV have come down sub-10 years generally. People are very interested now in battery storage as well, because it makes sense not to send any electricity you generate back to the grid. You know, you want to use it in the home and 
batteries open up that possibility. So, yeah, microgeneration certainly becoming more in demand. There's a lot of interest around heat pumps, which are very much going to be you know, a mainstay of how we heat our homes as we go to more electric forms of heating, air source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps in the future. And and there is a government grant, the boiler upgrade scheme that pays five to six thousand pounds for installing those heat pumps. Interesting. Now, somebody, and I'm, I'm being a bit selfish here, for somebody who's moving into a new home in, in the next few months, and are there tips that you can share with us that should be things that we should look forward to or look at when we're looking at making sure that the home is clean and renewable and it's refit to be the most kind of super home? There's things that we should really start with, which probably come up on a building survey, and that's looking at the basic insulation measures we tend to spend two thirds of our bills on central heating. So making sure we've got uh, good insulation in walls and roofs, particularly if possible, the floors and good double glazing. That's really the starting point. Also to make sure that you've not got really high air leakage, that the home's not really drafty with lots of gaps around windows and doors, for example. But you could also be thinking when you're looking at buying a new home about its potential to have renewable energy, you know, have you got an unshaded roof that's facing sort of southeast through to southwest? Then that's going to be, you know, suitable for solar PV. You know, heat pumps do look like they're going to be one of the mainstays, if not the, for, for heating our homes. And the air source heat pumps require a, a unit that's located outside. So looking that is there space for that to be positioned. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you, Paul. Thanks so much, Max. Wow. What an episode. I just want to say a huge thank you to my guests, how wonderful it is to hear from some amazing people who are doing great work for both their communities and planet. And thanks to you for joining our podcast and for being part of the clean energy revolution. If you'd like to find out more about how clean and green energy is part of your own world right now, you can follow National Grid on social media or visit nationalgrid.com. Next month, we'll be looking at ways to reduce emissions in our everyday lives and what the race to net zero emissions could mean for our homes and lifestyles. Make sure you follow and subscribe to this podcast and don't miss it. I'll see you soon.